But right now, I want to get right to the meat of uh, my program. Today is the 103rd anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, which gives women the right to vote. Uh, It was a long and hard struggle, a victory that took decades to accomplish. And some people say that it is probably the most important feminist uh, legislation uh, ever in the history of America. How do women uh, turn out to vote? And who do they vote for? And how impactful will their votes be in the future? With us today, discuss this topic is uh, Dr. Constance Mixon. She is a professor of political science and a director of urban studies at Elmhurst University. She teaches courses on American government. She writes and speaks, and she's a co-author of a book, 21st Century Chicago. Welcome, Dr. Mixon. How are you this afternoon? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So nice that you could put aside your your family obligations to to hop on with me. I really appreciate that. Um, So women got the right to vote in 1920. What can you tell us about the trends of women turning out to vote uh, over the years? Well, you know what's what's interesting? You know, in general, in turnout, women tend to turn out at slightly higher rates than men overall. Um, we see that it's higher, especially for black women and slightly higher for Hispanic women um, than their male counterparts. But in one of the emails that we exchanged prior today, we talked about the fact that, you know, the United States has had a male African-American president, but, but not a female one. And I, I thought this was interesting because it reminded me of when I first started teaching in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, I frequently asked my students which they thought would come first, an African-American male or a white female president. And at the time, we weren't even considering women of other races. And without fail, the majority of my students, who were quite diverse in terms of race and ethnicity, always said a white female. And they saw race as being the biggest hurdle to being elected to our nation's highest office. And I disagreed with my students, and I argued that it would be an African-American male as I saw gender as being the toughest hurdle. And it was interesting, in 2008, after the election of President Barack Obama, I received numerous emails from my from former <laughs> students who remembered my question. It, that's You know, it's interesting. And I was doing the math on this. African-American males got the right to vote in 1870, which is about 50 years prior to women getting the right to vote. And I think, I don't know that people focus on that, but it's, it, is, it does say something about the discrimination and the gender uh, differences um, being really, really important in the political process. And I still think we see this playing out. So females are more likely to go to the polls. Do we do we have any idea why? Do Is there anything that we know about why that is? You know, we see the uh, a significant gender gap, not just in terms of voter turnout, but also in party identification and public opinion and public policies. There's real differences between women and men. And I don't know that I could put a finger necessarily on why women tend to turn out at rates higher than men. 
Um, you know, it differs by a bunch of different factors. You know, if race is part of it. It's also levels of education. Um, and I think a lot of the issues, particularly, you know, recently we've seen differences. I think some of the public policies like gun policy, reproductive rights, those tend to motivate women, um, perhaps more so than men. And really since 1980, voter turnout in both presidential and midterm elections has been higher for women than men. And that may have to do with the two political parties taking more opposite sides on on particularly social issues and what we would typically call women's issues. We're here talking to Dr. Constance Mixon, who is a professor at Elmhurst University. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about party affiliation and gender. And then we'll talk also about the issue of Chicago being deemed by some to be the most corrupt city in the United States. And I thought as long as we have Dr. Mixon here, who teaches urban studies, she may be able to weigh in on why that is. This is WGN, and this is the Karen Conti Show. We're here talking to Dr. Constance Mixon. She is a professor at Elmhurst University. She teaches urban studies. She's the co-author of a book, 21st Century Chicago. Uh, welcome back. Let's, let's a couple questions, and then we can move off this topic of women in voting. But do women tend to vote more Democrat or Republican? And are women more likely to vote for women or men? Yeah, those are good questions. Um, overall, women are much more likely to vote Democrat. This is especially true for Black and Hispanic females. And as I mentioned earlier, we've seen real differences since 1980. Since 1980, women started voting at higher rates than men. And since 1980, women have been much more likely to vote Democrat. Prior to 1980, we really didn't see significant gender differences in party identification, but it was really with the election of Reagan that the two parties started taking significantly different positions on social issues like reproductive rights. Um, Are women more likely to vote for women? Yes and no. Gender is one of many factors that women consider when voting. What we do know as political scientists is that party identification seems to be higher, um, more important than gender. Um, Women seldom cross party lines to vote for a woman. So if if you are a Republican woman in 2016, you probably weren't voting Democrat just to vote for Hillary Clinton because she's a woman. Um, so, you know, if, if women voted for just women, we'd have many more women elected to public office, probably, (laughs) and uh, unfortunately we don't. So I think it, it is a factor, but it's one of many factors. 
Dr. Mixon, uh, in recent elections, we've seen Supreme Court races in various states where there's a lot of campaign money thrown at the candidates. Uh, our Illinois Supreme Court race was was a very rich one last uh, campaign, last uh, election. And in Wisconsin, I think it was the, it's, I think it might be the world record for the most contributions, topping $45 million in the, in the uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court election. Why do you think we're seeing so much more money funneled into these judicial races? Well, what we, you know, what political science research tells us that in states with partisan judicial elections, and it's important to point out that not all states elect their judges. Sometimes they're appointed and sometimes they don't run um, under partisan labels. But here in Illinois, um, and I believe also in Wisconsin, they, they run under a party label. We tend in those elections to see more campaign contributions because the stakes are higher. And then we see increased partisanship also amongst the judges. And I think particularly Wisconsin, our case here in Illinois is the state Supreme Court Judicial elections are receiving more attention in large part because of the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. After all, the law is only what the judges say the law is, and it's only constitutional if the judges say it is. And judges are people. If the partisan makeup of a court changes, like it could have in Illinois and in Wisconsin, it was very likely that we could have gotten different interpretations of the law, of the Constitution, and different decisions. What we do know is when the U.S. Supreme Court changed, the partisan makeup changed with Trump's three appointments to the U.S. Supreme Court, we got different decisions coming out of the court. And you know, most noteworthy, they overturned Roe v. Wade. Absolutely. And I have always said, you know, judges and justices always say we are not partisan. And But you can't really take, as you said, you know, you come from a certain walk of life, whether you're a female, whether you come from a poor background or a rich background, um, whether, you, you know, what what, is, what has been your history? And of course, that is going to paint, you know, how you view these core issues, gun rights, you know, reproductive rights. And to say that there is no partisan, I mean, maybe partisan is not the word. But life experiences, in my view, certainly dictates what a judge is going to do. Right. And they may try very hard to be just neutral, you know, interpreters of the law of the Constitution. But you're exactly right. Their life experiences, ideology, that that plays a role in how they interpret the law and the Constitution. I'm kind of glad we're finally just acknowledging that. Instead of playing this game that now they're all just neutral automatons, right. you know, and they you just spit in the facts and they spit out something without really, uh, you know, weighing in on it from their own perspective. Let's switch to the topic of political corruption, which, you know, you you teach in the Chicago area. And, you know, we have heard Chicago being referred to as one of the most corrupt cities in the country. Um, 
Why do you think we see all of these aldermen? I think in the, since the 70s, we've had 30 aldermen convicted of crimes. Why do you think that with all these prosecutions and all these convictions and all you know attempts to try to change the rules to, to monitor the political activities of our politicians, why do you think we keep seeing this kind of corruption? Yeah, you're right. And I think there's actually been 37 members oh. of Chicago City Council <laughs> wow. that have been convicted of crime. I rounded since, down. Since 1972. <laughs> right. And think about that, though. There's only 50 aldermen. Yeah, right. <laughs> there's only 50. <laughs> and 37 since 1972 have been convicted of crimes, even if it's 30. That's still a really, really high crime rate right. in our own city council. And I was looking at statistics. Um, I think we use it in our book that on average, a member of Chicago City Council is convicted every 16 months. And you're right. Illinois, Chicago, they're always, you know, we're always the most corrupt city or the most corrupt state or one of the most corrupt states. And this gives us a really bad reputation. It, it, It costs us money. And it lessens our trust in government. My political science colleagues at UIC, and we include some of their research in our book, they've estimated that the corruption tax in Illinois is over $500 million per year, which works out to about $800 per taxpayer in Illinois. Wow. That's a significant amount of money. And why does it continue to persist? Well, there's a lot of different answers to that. I think a lot of it has to do with Illinois and Chicago's long legacy of machine politics, which breeds corruption. Um, we've had machine, a Democratic machine in Chicago since the 1930s. It was a Republican machine before that. We've had Republican machines downstate um, in DuPage County for a long time. So we've had machines of both parties. And in order for the machines to keep working um, and to keep their boss, um, in power, they have to keep doling out favors and jobs. And this in itself breeds corruption. Illinois also has more units of local government than any other state in the nation. So I think all of these different factors play a role in why we tend to have so much corruption in Illinois, I mean, there's things we could do. We also don't have very strong ethics laws right. in Illinois, which would go a long way towards curbing it. And again, this chicken and the egg question. I ask a lot of people this question. Do you think that people are uh, attracted, people who are have the, uh, the possibility of being corrupt are attracted to a, a political uh, seat? Or do you think they're basically good people who get corrupted once they're there? I mean, I'm sure there's some of both. Um, But which one do you think you gravitate toward? Boy, yeah, it is a chicken and egg question. Um, I think there's a little bit of both. Um, For the most part, I do think that people go into public service and run for office with good intentions, that they don't intend to be corrupt, that they truly want to serve the public and promote our democracy, but because the system itself, the way it's structured, because of our legacy of machine politics, because of all these sort of obscure 
obscure units of local government, I think it has opened up opportunities for corruption and people oftentimes fall into it. Dr. Mixon, I have like 30 seconds for this last question, but I wanted to ask you, we know now that former Mayor Lori Lightfoot announced that she's going to teach a class at Harvard called Health Policy and Leadership. And, you know, she's she's leaving. Um, a lot of people didn't like her demeanor, saying she's brusque or tough, tough-skinned or combative. Do you think that she did not conduct herself appropriately, or do you think she's being treated unfairly as a woman in politics? And I have like 30 seconds. Oh, I I do think she is being treated unfairly. You know, she was criticized for being too tough. No one ever criticized Richard M. Daly or Rahm Emanuel for being too tough. You know, a lot was made of her text messages and languages. If you spent five minutes in a room with Rahm Emanuel, you heard worse <laughs> language than that. Right, and right. I just think there's a lot of layers with Lori Lightfoot to dissect between gender, race, sexual orientation. I think that all played a role. I I agree. And, you know, just it, I think in, in the workplace, we, we get treated differently, too. And, you know, you can choose to to go along with it or to buck the system. And uh, I, I think I agree with you. Dr. Constance Mixon, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Dr. Mixon is the author of 21st Century Chicago. I suggest you go out and buy it. It's on Amazon. Is that right? It is. All right. Thank you for joining me. Have a great rest of your afternoon. Great. Thank you so much.